Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifrac. Yes, the Broken Bridge. Today in the house, Martin Lindstrom. Martin, so good to see you. Bio first, and we got a first question for you. Martin's the founder and the chairman of the Lindstrom Company, a global branding and culture transformation firm operating across five continents, not Antarctica. What's wrong with you? And more than 30 countries. Time Magazine is named Martin uh, one of the world's 100 most influential people, and for three years running, Thinkers 50 has selected Lindstrom to be among the world's top 50 business thinkers. I agree. Among the companies he advises are firms like Burger King, Lowe's, Boar's Head, Beverly Hills Hotels, Pepsi, Nestle, Google, not your low-hanging fruit brands. These are big suckers. Lindstrom's the author of seven books, including several New York Times bestsellers, that have been translated in over 60 languages. The Wall Street Journal praised his book, Brand Sense, as one of the five best marketing books ever published. And his book, Small Data, as revolutionary. And then get this, Time Magazine calls his book, Biology, a breakthrough in branding. His most latest book is The Ministry of Common Sense, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses, and corporate BS. We're going to spend some time with Martin today on culture, leadership, and BS. So let's start first, Martin, with the term common sense. For me, as we've discussed over the years, you know, um, we both sort of sit in that corporate leadership culture space. Common sense in today's corporations, Martin, feels like an oxymoron. So <laughs> What's common sense or is it uncommon sense? And what are the key reasons, you know, common sense isn't really happening in today's organizations? Dan, it's such a good question. And by the way, thanks for, for inviting me to your amazing show. Um, I want to take you back just for a second and tell you about uh, two crazy people which were sitting in a dorm room smoking weeds <laughs> and they were completely off their heads and okay. of course shoot all these selfies and they post them to the world and guess what the day after mom and dad is freaking out and they get a panic attack and they say to themselves I wish we could retract those photos well guess what that was the foundation of Snapchat today a 50 billion dollar company so why do I tell you this story? Because they felt the pain their audience had, and through that they created a solution for it. That is really the foundation for a entrepreneurial company with an entrepreneurial spirit. You actually place yourself in the shoes of a customer or a consumer, and you feel their pain. That is the idea of empathy. Um, and what's really interesting, and what I discovered when I wrote the book. Um, the Ministry of Common Sense, was really that there's a direct parallel between uh, empathy and common sense. Common sense is also to see the things from another point of view. Uh, so what I really have realized is increasingly that we are lacking common sense in our daily lives, particularly at work, but also in private, to be frank, um, because companies increasingly are drifting away from who is paying the bill, which happened to be the the customer. And we're doing that because we're so busy with internalizing things, protecting ourselves through uh, compliance and legal and rules and guidelines and regulations and all that stuff, which certainly means that we're seeing the world from inside out rather than outside in. So common sense is really drifting away because we lost contact with what matters, which is our surroundings. 
Well, that's a really easy way to segue into, well, WTF, Martin. I mean, what is getting in the way then of us losing contact or touch with the customer? And I'll I'll, I'll dial it back a little bit. You know, I, I lived in the corporate world for 20 plus years at SAP, at TELUS, you know, in a role that I had, uh, I, I distinctly recall being part of a team that was enacting what we call customers first at TELUS, which is the only way we're going to stay in business, if not thrive, is to start from the customer and then work your way back to what processes, culture, leadership, et cetera, you need. So I think we tried uh, pretty well to to get rid of any uncommon sense. But what are you seeing then these days that's actually preventing the common sense and the empathy and thus the customer first from happening? Well, there's multiple factors. I mean, first of all, there is the reality of life today. You know, we, you and I are sitting in front of a screen right now talking to a lens. And I think it's fair to say that the majority of people working today are having a similar experience, eight, nine, 10 hours every day. And when you think about it, through this channel, empathy is really disappearing. I, I can't really feel you. I can't really see all the different movements you have. I would claim that quite often when we go into a meeting, uh, a physical meeting, you can sometimes feel, whoa, the air is thick here, right? Mm -hmm. Or when you talk to a person and there's a pause, you're not getting a reply, which is, Martin, you're mute, right? Because we actually are thinking and thinking time takes time, right? I can see on that body language that he's not really on board and she's a bit skeptical, but through the eye contact, I can feel I need to realign myself. And by the way, we were just arriving from the water cooler and the the canteen where we are aligning ourselves at an emotional level. And that meant that when I get into this meeting now, mm. I can't understand where she comes from. And that means I'm more willing to play along. All those factors are disappearing, has disappeared. And even worse, what is happening is that it becomes a linear way of communicating with each other. These channels become very sort of yes, no, faster, slower. But it's not like we are creative. It's not like we're creating a culture in those in those different types of channels we're operating with today. So this is one reason why this is happening, because when there is no ambiguity or space for ambiguity or empathy, um, it means that we're not taking chances, we're not breaking the rules, we're not thinking outside the box, all this stuff is gone. The the other side of the story is we also have become lazy, meaning that I'm sitting here and in fact, quite often we have client meetings where I should jump on a plane. We don't do that. We're so comfortable <laughs> about sitting here. So let's just not run another call here. But both you and I know when you meet people in person, it's very, very different. Well, guess what? We think we can control the consumer using a remote control. And we can't. We can't look them in the eyes. And what's really interesting is the consumer have changed fundamentally, probably never as much as what happened over the last three years in our living time. Yet we have no idea about how they're living differently uh, because we're looking statistics and statistics do not convey emotions. So the inside out perspective has been amplified through uh, red tape. The outside in has been cut off. And that means we now are sitting being more busy creating rules and regulations because we feel this is protecting my job. At least I'll not be fired from doing it. We never put our job on the line. And I think that's really the underlying issue, which I actually define as the immune system, the defense mechanism for change, which is so thick and increasingly growing thick in the organization that um, we kind of lost. And that's where common sense become nonsense.
<laughs> okay, well, it's fascinating. I love this inside out, outside in theory that you have. And it's not a theory, actually. It's actually in play. I, I get that. Where, where I think I'd like to go next, if you will, is from an organizational perspective, you know, culture stems from the top. And often, you know, directors and below mimic what the VPs and above are are behaving. So where is it then within the C-suite or the senior leadership that they're getting it wrong in this binary, unempathic way of not, not operating their business and thus not being customer first or looking from customer out and then figure out the right processes or whatever methodologies or avenues in which to to lead people and their customers well you have to look internally first before we take the outside perspective what really happens is that the leadership quite often walks around with a naive sense that if you um, give an order to people within the organization everyone parades order well, nothing could be further from the truth. There is a lack in the organization, and that lack quite often is what I define as the frozen middle, which really is in large organization paralyzing decisions. Um, the frozen middle is somewhat detached from the top management, meaning the top management may be one or two or three layers tops, right? They will give all the orders down to the frozen middle. The frozen middles are quite often optimized. They're cut to the bone. They are working late hours. And they just need to spit things out through the machine. Mm -hmm. um, so when the action has to take place, it bounces against the frozen middle. And that means that the good intentions, like you said, we want to be a customer-focused organization, which I would claim every single organization wants to, uh, it never really happens. Because when you then get on the floor in a store, on an airline company, wherever it is in the world, it just was paralyzed in all sorts of BES going on there. Um, and that's where you see the immune system. So really there's a lot of ways you can navigate around that, but the reality is that there is a disconnect and that disconnect becomes bigger and bigger uh, as we are all losing the culture, which really was meant to align everyone around one shared purpose. Well, maybe there's a purpose today, but that's hanging in the reception at a plaque <laughs> and it's not really lived and no one goes through the reception anymore. <laughs> So everyone work. is just trying to survive. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, within that frozen middle and a very astute point of view that you've made, uh, particularly with the uh, shared purpose plaque at the beginning of the, or the front of the, of the entrance uh, and reception, you also have some really, really neat adages like uh, official and unofficial codes of behavior. And so whether that's a new hire or kind of like a Martin Seligman's learned helplessness inside the organization, why is it that we, we seem to be in this malaise or this fog of these behaviors, both the official and unofficial? I wish I could give you the ultimate answer. Hmm. The, the way, first of all, I see this is that it's like playing chess. And uh, imagine that the chest suddenly was revamped for the fun of it. And every brick on that chess board is not what it looks like, what it mm -hmm. seems to be. Um, every one of those bricks have a different function. So when you start to play against uh, the other opponents and you play the rules as they are defined, the other opponents suddenly have powers or behaviors which you had no idea about. And actually, in reality, that player is just using some other bricks. That is where we are. 
that is happening of multiple reasons. I mean, to my view, there is probably two main reasons. One is what Amy Edmondson at Howard uh, was defining as a psychological safety. And psychological safety is an increasing dimension, which uh, typically when we work with organizations around the world, um, we see at least 40% of the employees feel unsafe in the organization. And I don't need to tell you that generates a ripple effect, meaning that I don't feel safe expressing what I'm thinking in meetings, which paralyzes the company because it never hears the truth. But also, I don't feel safe coming with great ideas, which means we're just doing the same old, same old, same old. So this is one dimension. I think the other dimension comes down to something awkward was his purpose. Mm. Um, the newer generation, the younger generation, don't want to end up like you and I with gray hair working in an organization forever without any purpose. They want to have two dimensions coming out of a job. One is a salary, perhaps even they want to learn, and then they want to change the world at the same time. And I think when you're sitting with a link and that's your only contact to that organization and there's no culture, your motivation is basically as loyal as that link is. And once you click on another link, that's the other company you're working for. That means you have actually no interest in changing the world or doing something for the greater because really the organization is not built around it. And as soon as that happens, you're not you're not playing outside the usual uh, safe space. And that means that you're just parading order and you're just hanging in there until there's something better happening, which is what I'm really looking for. So your soul and your heart is not there anymore. So you could say the answer is really on one hand, uh, psychological safety and the other dimension is culture. And when those two things come together, it can be incredibly powerful or incredibly toxic. And those two things also lend itself to bureaucracy and people playing games simply because they want to hang in there. So, Martin, the state of employee engagement has not materially changed in 20 plus years, whether it's Gallup, Aon Hewitt, wherever. And, and so what I'm worried about, and I'm curious about your thoughts, is for younger generations to us, Gen Z, millennials, whatever comes after Gen Z, I'm worried about disengagement shifting to disillusionment if we're not empathic towards the needs and hopes and dreams and aspirations of younger team members whom are disillusioned at work and just basically checking out. And then on the side at night or on weekends, they're actually doing what matters to them more. So how do we reconcile for leaders of today, whether they're millennials, Gen X or boomers still, about what really they should be doing to almost re-architect what matters for employees? Otherwise, will this disillusionment actually manifest? Well, I think we need to look at R&D in a different way. Today, a lot of companies are saying R&D, research and development, is to develop new products and services. But I think just as we've allocated money for that, we need to allocate money for developing cultures. Um and make it an ongoing sustainable activity rather than just a flash in the pan, which quite often it is when things are really bad. Mm -hmm. um, so the culture dimension means that the money you saved when people are no longer uh, sitting on planes and in hotels and on the road and the canteen is halfway shut down. And by the way, the office capacity has halved. 
and the security is no longer there. I mean, all those savings yeah. really has not gone into the company again. They went on the bottom line. Um, and that actually should be reinvested within the organization to explore and understand what culture really is. And that means that you need to design each and every single individual's job around what their passions and what their lifestyles are like. Um, I do that in our organization. We spend an enormous amount of time on nurturing our folks. And the outcome is really that people absolutely love working in our company. They feel safe, but they're also, frankly speaking, it's not my goal here, but they're actually also working quite a lot. Um, <laughs> and they feel safe to come with ideas. And that means, well, we're going very far. I'm not saying everyone should go that far, but when we have company parties, we go away for, for a week. We bring all the partners with us. When one of our employees' mother's brother is sick, we are sending flowers to the hospital. We are sending a person to be there to help them. I mean, we go very far because we define it as a family. Um, I don't think companies define it as a family. They kind of have all sorts of excuses for not doing it. But you have to. That is your future R&D, R&D into a, a culture where you research how we have changed, how our lifestyle has changed. You're not just saying everyone in the best Tesla form, format of Elon Musk have to go to work or say five. Or you go the opposite way and say, well, everyone has to work at home because we want to save the money. You're designing the program around each and everyone, and you create a personal career plan, which is really designed around their point of view rather than what my hidden agenda is. Now, all that stuff is very, very difficult to do yeah. if you build up a machine designed in one way. And now I'm actually flipping everything on the head. But I can tell you, there is no way around it. Sorry, there's no way around it. Else you simply will not get a new talent because everyone is building their own personal brand now. And the personal brand means that they will be as loyal as that link unless they really fall in love with the organization. That means they're always on the market. And uh, that means you don't have that culture unless you really invest on it right now. Create a movement and everyone's saying, gee, I want to work there. There, Join me. This is fun. Uh, Martin, gee, I want to work at Lindstrom Company. I think this is my next move. What, what do you say? Eh? Um, <laughs> you invited. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> so I want to I want to dive back a little bit to something you've said and bring it forward to today because I'm trying to reconcile two things here. And so that is, you've said we've become lazy because of, essentially, I would argue, probably the pandemic. It exacerbated people's you know, uh, propensity to stay at home, look into a web camera, et cetera, but also CFOs and senior leaders have taken that budget away to actually meet face-to-face -face or like, ah, we'll just have a Teams call or a Zoom call, what have you. And But however, there's extra effort that's really required this day and age for the empathy to manifest, for the, uh, for the leadership to be more visceral, more face-to-face, -face, more um, mattering to the in team member. So I guess my question really is, what is the right balance going forward if we see that burnout, anxiety, stress is catapulting through the roof, that yet you've said we've become lazy, and it seems to be that many leaders are overly busy, yet we're not meeting face-to-face. -face. So I'm trying to grapple with all this, and, and you're such an expert, I thought I'll throw that question your way, Marty. Well, thanks for that one. Um, <laughs> I actually don't think the answer is that complicated. Um, when you talk to colleagues, and perhaps even yourself, you will notice that we work 
25 to 30% more now than we did just three years ago. Mm -hmm. Everyone feels overwhelmed with work. Yet, if you take a look at the productivity, it's gone down. We produce a lot of PowerPoint shows. We produce a lot of Excel <laughs> spreadsheets. We are attending a lot of Teams and Zoom calls, right? Yeah. But are we really more productive? So what is the answer to this? Well, I call it the spring cleanup. Hmm. And if you really were to take your everyday life and put it into a matrix, there's really four buckets you could put it into. You could, on one hand, say, there's some stuff I do, which is spot on. This is exactly what I should do. The second one could be the stuff I should do to prepare myself for the future. So I'm not busy doing what I did to yesterday, but I do what's, do, done, or what's needed to do uh, the day after tomorrow. Then there's stuff I should kill, remove once and for all. And then there's stuff which I should improve. If you split that into this uh, model, you will notice that if you start to do timesheets or you ask yourself that question every hour as you're on a new call, you'll notice there's a lot of wasted time here. Yeah. And wasted time can be unproductive time in all sorts of different sense. There's meetings you shouldn't have taken where you do it just for the sake of doing it, admit it or not. There's stuff you do in private, which you shouldn't do. And uh, for a while I was watching too much YouTube, one and a half hour every day I noticed when I was noting it down on my timesheets and realized, what do I remember? A cat jumping, was that the highlight? So, <laughs> I mean... The reality is you should do a spring cleanup. And once you've done the spring cleanup, what you probably will notice is that you actually can go to the next phase, which is what I call one out, one in. Yeah. This is where you are freeing up your plate with stuff and replacing it with new, very on-point components. And that is where you can uh, remove nonsense and replace it into common sense. That's where you can fill up your plates with things which actually is making you thrive rather than this painful, I have to do this job every day. Yeah. It's where you also can get out of the uh, issue of navigating the past with all the emails you are so much behind on rather than actually thinking five weeks, 10 weeks, uh, a year ahead in time. Um, once you do that, I think you can attract the younger generation more than now when they're getting into this hamster wheel for some of some kind right but you need to do the spring cleanup and i think you as a boss need to encourage your uh, employees to do that uh, through different means so you also need to make them become accountable for it because if you don't do that they will feel like they are cheating when i'm sitting doing spring cleanups when i'm doing all these exercises which at first seems to be sort of why should i do this and then uh, I think it's important once you have that time freed up that you reconnect your employees with the customers. No matter if you're back of office, your front office, you are a support function in your organization, uh, you need to get out there and reconnect. Every single major successful private company in the world began that way. Everything from when I met the founder and the owner, the late Ingvar Kempron, uh, the founder of Ikea, uh, and I met up with him in Sweden, and he was not at the office, and I asked everyone, where is he? Well, he's at his usual place. I said, where is that? Down at the cash register. And sure enough, already back then, this old man was sitting at the cash register checking every customer out. And I asked him during the break, why do you do it? And he said to me, because I want to look everyone in the eyes 
and see what they're dreaming and feel what they're thinking at. And, and that is the reason why IKEA is what it is today, he told me. That is a reconnection with the customer. We don't do that anymore. We look at the spreadsheet and we do things for remotely. And that is what's, you can say, uh, infusing the nonsense into the organization and really paralyzing it over the long run. Well, and that term that you've put in the book and you've used in other places, corporate nonsense, seems to be snowballing, not just the term, but the amount of corporate nonsense. So, you know, for example, Martin, the the meetings to plan for the meeting for the boss meeting, you know, that's yeah. corporate nonsense. You know, there's what are some other examples of corporate nonsense you think need to be uh, ex- like completely extricated from from our from our lexicon, if not our behavior? Well, a very simple one is is really the email and the email culture around it. I mean, I have met people in financial institutions which are receiving more than 800 emails every day. Now, if you do the math and you just spend one minute per email, that's your entire workplace. And, right. and then you haven't even replied back to it and you haven't even done your work yet. Um, so in this particular instance for a major financial institution, um, I asked everyone, would you like to reduce the number of emails? And everyone raised their hand naturally. I said, how many of you read the CC emails you receive every day? And there were some people raising their hand. I said, why do you do that? Well, because I guess we have to. I said, what if we get rid of it? What if we ban the CC button in Outlook? And there was a couple of people from compliance and legal saying, well, that's not possible. I said, why not? Why don't we just do a pilot? So we did a pilot for a, for a month. There was no objections. There was no complaints. Nothing happened, really. And after that, we actually had literally half the number of emails. Wow. And because there's a direct collision between the number of emails you sent and the ones you receive. These are small, bite-sized pieces of common sense. And in in a case of a, a major bank called Standard Charter Bank, we actually introduced the Ministry of Common Sense with the sheer purpose of finding all these stupidities going on and one by one, flicking them around with a simple solution, attaching it to it, implement it straight away. And over the years, they have cleaned up more than 2,000 stupidities within the bank. What I'm saying here is that there's a lot of that stuff, a lot of that BS going on. And you actually can clean it up, but you just need to have a very simple methodology of impl- implementing a minister of common sense. And then that vacuum cleans all this stuff. And then you need to maintain it because... This is like everything else. It grows, and once you removed it, it comes back again because new people join the organization and the world changes. My uh, my penultimate question, because we're running out of time. I could chat with you for hours, Martin. Before we find out more about you and where to find out more about you and the organization, I, I have a question for you that relates specifically within the organizational structure and uncommon sense versus common sense, and that's HR. So... What's your feeling today that HR's responsibility ought to be as an organization shifts towards this new culture, which I hope is certainly more face-to-face and more hybrid, but also having a greater sense of empathy? Is is HR being replaced? Is HR needing to have a better, bigger seat at the table? Where what is HR's you know responsibility uh, for the future? Well, first of all. Um... Today, no one owns culture. It doesn't belong to the chief operating officer, the chief strategy officer, or to the head of human resources or marketing. 
Um, it should, in my opinion, belong to HR. But I'll be very, very honest with you. I mean, we work with organizations across the world. And in the good old days, which is about five years ago, I would have claimed that around 10% of HR, really good HR people get it. They yeah. get the idea of culture. I think that number had dropped to 1%. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's dropped to 1%. The rest have become a legal function, washing their hands, hiring and firing, protecting the CEO on the board and the company, but they don't really have interest in the employees. They are detached from culture. They lip sync to it. Wow. Um, so if you have an amazing HR person which really gets it, it should live there. But if you don't have that, it's very toxic to play it there because they will play the game, but it will never really happen. Uh, you could say the operation succeeded, but the patient died. So uh, that means it has to either be a separate function, which have an ultimate mandate to operate across the organization with a direct line to the CEO, or some other structure where it's given a mandate. And the mandate is that it actually can shuffle things around and create initiatives which, where they actually have the funds to, to do that. And there is a, the person have a say. I wish it would be HR. And in some cases, when it's been the one percenter, it's been extraordinarily well received. Right. But when it's the 99%, it is quite often an uphill battle in them being more busy protecting themselves and actually protecting what matters, which is the people. Well, I certainly look at myself as someone who doesn't lip sync. And I know you, Martin Lindstrom, is not a lip syncer. You are the real deal. <laughs> Tell us more about where we can find out uh, about Martin and Lindstrom Company. Then it's super simple. It's just my name, martinlindstrom.com. And that will take you into Lindstrom Company and our organization. And, and by the way, if you want to uh, listen to some of my work or, or watch it or read about it, just find me on LinkedIn. Uh, on Twitter or on Instagram where you just type in my name and there I am. Well, I can't tell you how much I look forward to clinking a glass with you at, I uh, hope, uh, an event, maybe Thinkers 50 in the fall in November yeah, in yeah. London. Uh, it's always great to catch up with you, Martin. You've been a trailblazer for years and I look up to you immensely. Thank you for all your work and uh, we'll see you soon, my friend. Dan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Everyone, another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract, today in the house, of course, the one and only Martin Lindstrom. Wow. Uh, thank you, Martin, once again. Look forward to another episode coming soon to you.